0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys and ghouls, this here is the first episode of the Macabre Mysteries. Now what this podcast is going to be about is going to be true crime and other macabre stories that I find, some unsolved mysteries, some what the fuck happened type of thing that may have an answer, it may not have an answer, but I just wanted to kind of bring my love of true crime to the podcast world i see tons of true crime podcasts every day and i know that that's like a general theme when it comes to the the podcasting industry is that a lot of people kind of get big off of true crime podcasts but i thought with with modest would be so much of a this is going to be what's going to take off, but this is more of like a passion project for me. Just like doing the Ways World podcast. The reason why I have not been doing the Ways World podcast as often as I would have liked to do it is because I've I've had a lot of personal things going on. But then also, I've been kind of having the idea for this true crime podcast in the back of my mind. And... I thought if I can go ahead and push this out and go ahead and put this out, then, you know, it'll help me retool and refocus for the Ways World podcast. But this is definitely Macabre Mysteries. And on this particular episode, we're going to start off somewhat general, but still a very interesting topic to cover. We're talking about... None other than the man himself, Theodore Robert Bundy, born Theodore Robert Kyle. So what we're going to do on this one, that's not really the the same as other ones that I've heard. We're not going to really give you too much of a backstory. We're going to kind of give you a brief backstory, but then we're going to go ahead and get right into the shit. So, just a a brief, brief backstory of who uh, Mr. Bundy was. Um, Ted Bundy was born Theodore Theodore Robert Cow on November 24th, 1946, to Eleanor Louise Cow and um, unknown father um, in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, For the first few years of his life, Bundy lived in Philly. Um, In some interviews, uh, he spoke warmly of his grandparents, who he stayed with for a little while. Uh, Bundy described his grandmother as timid and an obedient woman who periodically underwent electroconvulsive therapy for depression. Um, let's go a little bit deeper into his history. So, the university years after graduating from high school in 1965, Bundy attended the University of Puget Sound, uh, UPS, for one year before transferring to the University of Washington to study Chinese. Um, in 1967, he became romantically involved with a UW classmate who was identified by several pseudonyms in Bundy's biography, but most commonly Stephanie, Stephanie Brooks. In early 1968 he dropped out of college and worked at a series of minimum wage jobs. He also volunteered at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller. Now the reason why breaking up his college years are very 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 important is because he ended up having a type that type is based off of one of the girls that you know Bundy ended up dating um or one of the girls he ended up getting engaged to. So we're going to skip forward a little bit, right? In 1974, um, he abruptly broke off all contact from... Matter of fact, let's go back a little bit further. that. I'm sorry. Uh, during a trip to California on the Republican Party business in the summer of 1973, Bundy rekindled his relationship with the aforementioned Stephanie Brooks she marveled at his transformation into a serious, dedicated, and professional seemingly on the cusp of a legal and political career. He continued to date um, uh, Klopfer I can't get her name right, I've been trying to get her name right for so long, so please excuse me Uh, as well neither woman was aware of the other's existence in the fall of 1973 Um, and with all of that um, Bundy and Brooks continued uh, Bundy continued courting Brooks who flew to Seattle several times to stay with him they discussed marriage at one point he introduced her to Davis as his fiance um, Davis being da, 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 let's see here Davis I forgot who Davis was in this this whole this whole thing um, let me see I'm trying to find who Davis was for y'all Hmm. can't find Davis can't find Davis but 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 let's just kind of get through this part because we're going to get into the very interesting so In 1974, like I said, he he abruptly broke off all contact from everybody. Her phone calls and letters went unreturned. We're talking about Brooks here. Finally reaching him by phone a month later, Brooks demanded to know why Bundy had unilaterally ended their relationship without explanation. In a flat, calm voice, he replied, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean. And hung up. She never heard from him again and later explained, I just wanted to prove to myself that I could have married her. But Brooks concluded in retrospect that he had deliberately planned the entire courtship and rejection in advance as vengeance for their breakup she initiated in 1968. Again, crazy. Crazy as fuck. This man has been crazy as fuck. So basically, the ramblings that I just did break down like this. So, he was born in Vermont. Uh, he was born to his mother. His father's identity isn't really known like that. Um, it's never been confirmed. He stayed with his grandparents for a little while when they lived, when him and his mother lived in Philly, uh, he went to the university of Washington where he met Stephanie Brooks in 1968, Stephanie Brooks broke off their relationship, uh, citing that, you know, he was basically doing weird shit to, to keep it very, very simple. Um, he was doing weird shit. Um, and as a matter of fact, I'll even read you this excerpt. So in August, Bundy attended the 1968 Republican National Convention in Miami as a Rockefeller delegate. Shortly thereafter, Brooks ended their relationship and returned to her family home in California, frustrated by what she described as Bundy's immaturity and lack of ambition. So when they ended up linking up years later... And 1972, 1973, around that time, when they ended up blinking again years later, like she said, Bundy pretty much had a plan. He was like, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to get back with her. And I only really want to get back with her to prove to myself that I can marry her. That's That was his whole intent behind getting back with Stephanie Brooks. And once he felt like he, you know, accomplished his goal, he broke everything off said fuck it and dipped Uh, but by that point Bundy had began skipping classes at law school by April he had stopped attending entirely as young women began to disappear in the Pacific Northwest which is where our story actually starts there is no consensus on when or where Bundy began killing women he told different stories to different people and refused to divulge the specifics of his earliest crimes Even as he confessed in graphic detail to dozens, dozens of later murders in the days preceding his execution, he told Nelson that he attempted his first kidnapping in 1969, Uh, and then after that in Ocean City, he he committed that in Ocean City, New Jersey, but did not. Or he committed the kidnapping in 1969 in Ocean City, New Jersey, but did not kill anyone until sometime in 1971 in Seattle. He told uh, psychologist Art Norman that he killed two women in Atlantic City in 1969 while visiting family in Philadelphia. So you see the conflicting information right there. Uh, he told this this Nelson person. Uh, he told Nelson that he didn't really start killing until 1971, but he told a different psychologist that he actually started his whole murder spree in 1969 Um, Nelson being Polly Nelson um, a member of his last defense team and she even called him the very definition of heartless evil so he told one of his attorneys that He didn't start killing until 1971, but he told the psychologist that he actually started killing around 1969. He hinted but refused to elaborate to homicide detective Robert D. Keppel that he committed a murder in Seattle in 1972 and another murder in 1973 that involved a hitchhiker near Tumwater. Uh, Rule and Keppel both believed that... Rule and Keppel both believe that he might have started killing as a teenager. Um, circumstantially ev- circumstantial evidence suggested that he may have abducted and killed eight-year-old Anne Marie Burr of Tacoma when he was 14 years old in 1961. An allegation that he repeatedly denied. So what we can get from him off the back, just through these first couple of he shit he said, she said stories, is. He was a compulsive liar, and he made it to the point where he made himself to the point where he could get under people's skin. He can get in people's heads. He could. He was a deceiver. He was a trickster. That was his whole MO. I can make you believe whatever the fuck I want to make you believe because I'm that goddamn good. By the way, Rule is ruler Rule, a biographer, and um, she described Bundy as being a sadistic psychopath who took pleasure... From another human's pain and the control he had over his victims, to the point of death and even after, he once described himself as the most cold-hearted son of a bitch you'll ever meet. We're dealing with the crazy motherfucker on this one. But again, if you know the story of Ted Bundy, then you already know that he's a fucking psychopath. But let's continue. So... After the circumstantial evidence in 1961, his earliest documented homicides were committed in 1974 when he was 27 years old. By then, by his own admission, he had mastered the necessary skills in the era before DNA profiling to leave minimal incriminating forensic evidence at crime scenes. What people also do have to realize is a lot of these people... We're able to get away with this shit for so fucking long because like it said, DNA profiling was not a thing at that time to be able to pick up a piece of somebody's DNA off of a piece of tissue off of the corner of a room off of somebody got caught off of a pizza box one time. Like in order to to be able to pick those type of details up, it takes DNA profiling and. That's why a lot of murders and kidnappings go unsolved, because up until a certain point, DNA profiling uh, really was not a thing. It actually started in the 1980s. Start, so here's a little background about it. Starting in the 1980s, scientific evidence followed, allowed the The use of DNA as a material for the identification of an individual. The first patent covering the direct use of DNA variation for forensics was filed by a man named Jeffrey Glasberg in 1983, based upon work he had done while at Rockefeller University in 1981. So it wasn't until the 1980s that DNA profiling even got to the point where you could use it in a criminal justice sense because when it comes to trials and when it comes to law and when it comes to crime new forms of like trying to prove somebody guilty can get rejected very very easily in the court of law if you don't have some sort of proof to back up that this is a legitimate way of proving guilt like the law really does not play about that you have to have it's something Substantial to, to prove guilt and new ways, new technologies that they try to use in the courtroom. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's flawed, sometimes it's on the money with DNA profiling. This is something that's been on the money for quite a while because it's helped quite a few people get caught that deserve to be caught, ergo Mr. Bundy. But let's continue. So I'm sorry I'm spoken to at the same time let's see so here we were um, shortly after midnight on January 4th 1974 around the time that he terminated his, his relationship with Brooks Bundy entered the basement apartment of 18 year old Karen Sparks identified as Joni Lenz Mary Adams and Terry Caldwell by various sources a dancer and student at UW. After bludgeoning Sparks senselessly with a metal rod from her own bed frame, he sexually assaulted her with either the same rod or a metal speculum, causing extensive internal injuries. She remained unconscious for 10 days, but survived with permanent physical and mental disabilities. So 1974 is when he really like started picking up and it started catching the radar, which again is fucked up because he said himself to one of the people that interviewed him. He said 1969 and another person. He said 1971, um, it was just something that, like, continuously picked up from a very, very young age. Like, Ted Bundy was born in, like, 1946. So around 1961, he would have been 15. So they always talk about, like, that, that serial killer genes or, like, signs of a fucking serial killer. And it seems like Ted Bundy had it because he was out here doing reckless shit. Like, horrible. Not even, like, fun reckless. Like disgustingly, horribly, reckless type shit from a very, very young fucking age. But, again, we're talking about a very macabre person, which is why he is being profiled on Macabre Mysteries. So, after the assault on Karen Sparks um, and her having to, to permanently, from that day forward, live and deal with permanent physical and mental disabilities in the early morning hours of February 1st of that same year, Bundy broke into a basement room of Linda Ann Healy, another UW undergraduate, um, or another UW student. This one was an undergraduate who broadcast morning radio weather reports for skiers. Uh, He beat her unconscious, dressed her in blue jeans, a white blouse, and boots, and carried her away. During the first half of 1974, female college students disappeared at the rate of about one per month. On March 12th, Donna Gail Manson, a 19-year-old student at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, 60 miles southwest of Seattle, left her dormitory to attend a jazz concert on campus, but never arrived. On April 17th, Susan Elaine Rancourt disappeared while on her way to her dorm room after an evening advisors meeting at Central Washington State College in Ellensburg um, 110 miles southeast of Seattle uh, two female central Washington students later came forward to report encounters one night on one on the night of rancourt's disappearance which again was on April 17th. Um, and then the other three nights earlier with the man wearing a arm sling asking for help carrying a load of books to his brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. Now, I want you all to keep that Volkswagen Beetle in your mind because that's going to be very, very important in our story later on down the line. So these are, again, just a couple of... The first like series of murders that that Bundy committed. So, we already have um, a possible Anne Marie Burr, Karen Sparks. We also have Linda Healy. Uh, we also have Donna Manson. Now we have Susan Rancourt. On May sixth roberta kathleen parks left her dorm at oregon state to have coffee with friends at the memorial union but never arrived that's another one i think we're we're getting close to that 10 mark in like the first the first like few years of like this serious run that he was going on as far as killing and kidnapping like horrible horrible shit detectives from King County in Seattle uh, police departments grew increasingly concerned there was no significant physical evidence and the missing women had little in common apart from being young attractive white college students with long hair parted in the middle on June 1st Brenda Carroll Brenda uh, Carol Ball, 22, disappeared after leaving the Flame Tavern in Burren near Seattle. She was last seen, or near the airport, um, she was last seen in the parking lot talking to a brown-haired man with his arm and a sling. Like I said, remember that beetle, and now also, remember that sling, because those are two, those are two very, very important details, again, in this story that will play a factor later on at the end so this is the like i said this is the the first couple or the first couple of series so that's what was going down in washington right um we're gonna read a couple more of what happened in washington and then we'll actually move on to like idaho utah and colorado because he moved around um So the Pacific Northwest murders culminated on July 14th with the broad daylight abductions of two women from a crowded beach at Lake Samish State Park, Samish, Samish State Park, in Issaquoy, a suburb 20 miles east of Seattle. Five female witnesses described an attractive young woman wearing a white tennis outfit, with his or I said, I said a young woman an attractive young man wearing a white tennis outfit with his left arm in a sling speaking with a light accent perhaps canadian or british introducing himself as ted he asked for their help in unloading a sailboat from his tan or bronze colored volkswagen beetle four refused one accompanied him as far as his car saw there was no sailboat and fled three additional witnesses saw him approach janice and Alt. 23 a probation caseworker at the king county juvenile court with the sailboat story and watched her leave the beach in his company about four hours later dennis marie denise marie naslin a 19 year old woman who was studying to become a computer programmer left a picnic to go to the restroom and never returned bundy told both stephanie mitchett and william hagmere that i was still alive when he returned from naslin and that he forced one to watch as he murdered the other but he later denied it in an interview with Lewis on the eve of his execution. King County police um, finally armed with the detailed description of their suspect and his car posted flyers throughout the Seattle area. A composite sketch was printed in regional newspapers and broadcast on local television. Um, Elizabeth Klopfer and Rule, a DES employee and a UW psych. Psychology professor all recognized the profile, the sketch, and the car, and reported Bundy as a possible suspect. But detectives who were receiving up to 200 tips per day thought it unlikely that a clean-cut law student with no adult criminal record could be the perpetrator. On September 6, two gross hunters, two gross hunters, stumbled across the skeletal remains of all and Nusslein near a service road in Issa-Court. Um An extra. Femur and several vertebrae found at the site were later identified by Bundy as George Ann Hawkins. Six months later, forestry students from Green River Community College discovered the skulls of and mandibles of Healy, Rancourt, Parks, and Ball on Taylor Mountain, where Bundy frequently hiked just east of Isakoy. Mans's remains were never recovered. So it's another piece here that I actually do want to to read. Right. So here. Um, During this period During this period of time in Washington Of of Bundy um, Kidnapping, killing, and dumping the bodies Bundy was working in Olympia As the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission Where he wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention Later he worked at the Department of Emergency Services A state government agency involved in the search for the missing women At DES, he met and dated Carol Ann Boone, a twice-divorced mother of two who, six years later, would play an important role in the final phase of his life. Reports of the six missing women and Sparks' brutal beating appeared prominently in newspapers and on television throughout Washington and Oregon. Fear spread among the population hitchhiking by young women dropped sharply. Pressure mounted on law enforcement agencies. but. The paucity of physical evidence severely hampered them. Police could not provide reporters with the little information that was available for fear of compromising the investigation. Further similarities between the victims were noted. The the disappearances all took place at night, usually near ongoing construction work, within a week of midterms or finals. All of the victims were wearing slacks or blue jeans, and at most crime scenes, there were sightings of a man wearing a cast or a sling. And driving a brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle I told y'all those two details would come up to be very important because the Volkswagen Beetle and the man with the sling for an arm were again Ted Bundy and these were the the signs these were the the, the things that that people were able to, to see and the things that were getting him caught like the the things that were catching people's attention so, this is what we're gonna do next. So like I said, we're gonna to go to Idaho, Utah, and Colorado. We're gonna read a couple of these, and then we're gonna go ahead and you know head out from there. So, in August of 1974, Bundy received a second acceptance from the University of Utah Law School and moved to Salt Lake City, leaving Clubford and Seattle. Clubford was the other woman that he was dating. While he was also dating Brooks, he never stopped dating Clubber. but he just got back with Brooks, like I said earlier, to prove that he could, and he left her the fuck alone. While he called Clubber often he dated at least a dozen other women as he studied the first-year law curriculum a second time. He was devastated to find out that the other students had something, some intellectual capacity that he did not he found the classes completely incomprehensible it was a great disappointment to me he said a new string of homicides began the following month including two that will remain undiscovered until bundy confessed to them shortly before his execution on september 2nd he raped and strangled a still unidentified hitchhiker in idaho then either disposed of the remains immediately in a nearby river or returned the day to photograph and dismember the corpse on october 2nd he sees 16 year old nancy wilcox and Holiday, a suburb of Salt Lake City, her remains were buried near Capitol Reef National Park, some 200 miles south of Holiday, but were never found. On October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, the 17-year-old daughter of the police chief of Midvale, another Salt Lake City suburb, disappeared after leaving a pizza parlor. Her new body was found in a nearby mountainous area nine days later. Post-mortem examination indicated that she may have remained alive for up to seven days following her disappearance. On October 31st, Laura and Laura Ann Aim, also 17, disappeared. Her naked body was found by hikers nine miles to the northeast. Both women had been beaten, raped, sodomized, and strangled with nylon stockings. Years later, Bundy described his post-mortem rituals with the corpses of Smith and AIM, including hair shampooing and application of makeup. Woo! This motherfucker was sick. He was sick, sick. Like, sick, 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 sick. He was over here putting makeup on the corpses. He was shampooing the hair of the corpses. Like i'm wondering if this motherfucker was was into to necrophilia like he that's some weird ass shit that is some weird ass shit i know it's some weird shit in 2021 and that would definitely have been some weird shit in 1970 as well standards for shit have definitely changed we've improved as a society or at least we're continuously trying to in some aspects but no 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 this is just a a big bag of what the fuck Ted. This is a um a large composite sketch of this nigga's crazy. And I'm just trying to just trying to grasp as I again as I, I unveil the story to you all like what could make somebody's mind that fucking sick is it a natural gene that's in your head and it's something that you can't help or or is it just the the general experiences that you dealt with as a child that made you this fucking sick like i know i'm not the only person that ponders these questions because these are the questions that people that deal with criminal minds on a psychological basis this is something that they deal with every fucking day this is a question that they've still been trying to answer like the the question of is there a such thing as a serial killer gene like that that's still a question that's continuously asked. there are things as sociopaths there are things as psychopaths and a lot of times people of those natures like end up becoming serial killers so it could simply be a gene if you are identified as a sociopath or a psychopath you do have the potential to do something this wicked Let's continue, though. In the late afternoon of November 8th, Bundy approached 18-year-old telephone operator Carol Durange at a fashion mall in Murray. Less than a mile away from from the Midville restaurant where Melissa Smith was last seen, he identified himself as Officer Roseland of the murray police department and told derange that someone had attempted to break into her car he asked her to accompany him to the station to file a complaint when derange pointed out to bunny that he was driving on a road that did not lead to the police station he immediately pulled to the shoulder and attempted to handcuff her during the struggle he inadvertently fastened both handcuffs to the same wrist and derange was able to open the car door and escape Later that evening, Deborah Jean Kent, a 17-year-old student at Viewmont High School in Bountiful, 20 miles north of Murray, disappeared after leaving a theater production at the school to pick up her brother. The school's drama teacher and student told police that a stranger had asked each of them to come out to the parking lot to identify a car. Another student later saw the same man pacing in the rear of the auditorium, and the drama teacher spotted him again shortly before the end of the play. Outside the auditorium, investigators found a key that unlocked the handcuffs removed from Carol Durant's wrist. Um, In November, Elizabeth Klopfer called King County Police a second time after reading the young women were disappearing in towns surrounding Salt Lake City. Detective Randy Hergesmeyer, and I hope I'm saying that name right, of the Major Crimes Division interviewed her in detail. By then, Bundy had, risen, Bundy had risen considerably on the King County hierarchy of suspicion, but the lake, Samam, blah, 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 I have a weird thing about me when it comes to certain words that kind of come together. Like, I can't, like, World War Three. I have some, a hard time saying that sometimes, and, like, Russell Westbrook, I can say that now because I'm thinking about it, but, like, Samamish. I have to get that in my mind for this story. Samamish. But the Lake Semimish witness, considered most reliable by detectives, failed to identify him from a photo lineup. In December, in December Clubford called the Salt Lake City County Sheriff's Office and repeated her suspicions. Bundy's name was added to the list of suspects, but at the time, no credible forensic evidence linked him to the, to the Utah crimes. In January of 1975, Bundy returned to Seattle after his final exams and spent a week with Clubford who did not tell him that she had reported him to police on three occasions she made plans to visit him in salt lake city in august in 1975 bundy shifted much of his criminal activity eastward from his base in utah to colorado on january 12th a 23 year old registered nurse named carol eileen campbell um karen eileen campbell disappeared while walking down a well-lit hallway between the elevator and her room at the wildwood inn Um, which was in Snowmass Village, about 400 miles of south, southeast of Salt Lake, Salt Lake City. I can't talk this episode. Her nude body was found a month later next to a dirt road just outside the resort. She had been killed by blows to her head from a blunt instrument that left distinctive linear groove depressions on her skull. Her body also bore deep cuts from a sharp weapon. On March 15th, 100 miles northeast of Snowmass, Vale's ski instructor, Julie Cunningham, 26, disappeared while walking from her apartment to her dinner date with a friend. Bundy later told Colorado investigators that he approached Cunningham on crutches and asked her to help carry his ski boots to his car, where he clubbed and handcuffed her, then assaulted and strangled her at a secondary site near Rifle. Weeks later, he made the six-hour drive from Salt Lake City to revisit her remains. Denise Lynn Oliverson, 25, disappeared near the Utah Colorado border in Grand Junction on April 6th while riding her bicycle to her parents' house. Her bike and sandals were found near a viaduct near a railroad bridge on May 6th. Bundy Lord, 12 year old Lynette Dawn Culver from Alameda Junior High School in Pocatello, Idaho, um, he drowned and then sexually assaulted her in his hotel room before disposing of her body in the river north of Pocatello, possibly the snake. In mid-May, three of Bundy's Washington State DES co-workers, including Carol Ann Boone, visited him in Salt Lake City and stayed for a week in his apartment. Bundy subsequently spent a week in Seattle with for in early June, and they discussed getting married the following Christmas. Again, Clubfer made no mention of her multiple discussions with the King County Police and Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office. Bundy disclosed neither his ongoing relationship with Boone, nor a concurrent romance with Utah law student known in various accounts as Kim Andrews or Sharon Howard. On June 28, Susan Curtis vanished from the campus of Brigham Young University in Provo. In August or September of 1975, Bundy was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints although he was never an active participant in services and ignored most church restrictions. He would later be excommunicated by the LDS church following his 1967 kidnapping conviction. When asked his religious preference after his arrest, Mundy answered Methodist, the religion of his childhood. In Washington state, investigators were still struggling to analyze the Pacific Northwest murder spree that ended as abruptly as it began in an effort to make sense of an overwhelming mass of data. They resorted to the then innovative strategy of compiling a database. They used the King County Payroll computer, a huge primitive machine by contemporary standards, but the only one available for their use. After inputting the mini lists they had compiled, classmates and acquaintances of each victim, Volkswagen owners named Ted known sex offenders, and so on, they queried they que- la- la. They queried the computer for coincidences out of a thousand um, of the names, 26 turned up on four lists. One was Ted Bundy himself. Detectives also manually compiled a list of their 100 best suspects And Bandy. I said Bandy. Bundy was on that list as well. He was literally at the top pile of suspects when word came from Utah of his arrest. So, we gave you, or I gave you, I said we because I'm normally joined by somebody, but I gave you Um, a little bit of the backstory and then i went ahead and i proceeded into the murders we're going to go ahead and kind of close this segment out here and we're going to go ahead and get into the arrest the first trial a couple of escapes and then his time on death row we'll be right back here with you on macabre mysteries Ladies and gentlemen, we're back here on Macabre Mystery. So, after getting into his early life and his crime spree, the next thing we're going to do is get into his arrest and his first trial. So, on August 16th, 1975, Bundy was arrested by Utah Highway Patrol officer Bob Hayward in Granger, Utah, which was uh, another like Salt Lake City suburb. Hayward had observed Bundy cruising a residential area in the pre dawn hours. Bundy fled the area at a high speed after seeing the patrol car. The officer searched the car after he noticed that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the rear seats. He, in the car, he also found a ski mask, a second mask fashioned from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and other items initially assumed to be burglary tools. Bundy explained that the ski mask was for skiing. He had found the handcuffs in a dumpster, and the rest were just common household items. You know, just normal shit that people have around the house, like coils of rope, trash bags, ice picks, you know, shit like that. Uh, Again, I don't have none of that shit around. I have trash bags around my house. I don't have any fucking coils of rope or any goddamn ice picks, but this is 2021, so... However, Detective Jerry Thompson remembered a similar suspect and car description from the November 1974 Durange kidnapping and Bundy's name from Clubford's December 1974 phone call. In a search of Bundy's apartment, police found a guide to Colorado ski resorts from a checkmark by the Wildwood Inn and in a brochure that advertised the Viewmont High School play in Bountiful where Deborah Kent, the 12-year-old that, you know, he kidnapped and tortured, um, that's where she disappeared from. The police did not have sufficient evidence to detain Bundy, and he was released on his own recognizance. Bundy later said that searchers missed a hidden collection of Polaroid photographs of his victims, which he destroyed after he was released. Um, Salt Lake City Police placed Bundy on 24-hour surveillance And Thompson flew to Seattle with two other detectives to interview Klumpfer. And again, I hope I'm saying her name right. She told them that in the year prior to Bundy's move to Utah, she had discovered objects that she she couldn't understand um, in her house and in Bundy's apartment. These items included crutches, a bag of plaster of Paris that he admitted stealing from a medical supply house, and a meat cleaver that was never used for cooking. Additional objects included surgical gloves, an oriental knife, in a wooden case that he kept in his glove compartment, and a sack full of women's clothing. Bundy was, was perpetually in debt, and Clover suspected that he had stolen almost everything of significant value that he possessed. When she confronted him over a new TV and stereo, he warned her, If you tell anyone, I'll break your fucking neck. We, once again, ladies and gentlemen, are dealing with a psychopath have to keep saying that because the things that he says or the things that he does or the way that he moves does not surprise me because Theodore bundy is a fucking psychopath a sociopath more than anything she also said that bundy became very upset whenever she considered cutting her hair which was long and parted in the middle she would sometimes awaken in the middle of the night to find him under the bed covers with the flashlight examining her body He kept a lug wrench, taped halfway up the handle in the trunk of her car, another Volkswagen Beetle which he often borrowed for protection. The detectives confirmed that Bundy had not been with Clover on any of the nights during which the Pacific Northwest victims had vanished, nor on the day Ott and Nuzlan were abducted. Shortly thereafter, Clover was interviewed by Seattle Homicide Detective Kathy McChesney, McChesney And learned of the existence of Stephanie Brooks in her brief engagement to Bundy around Christmas of 1973. In in September, Bundy sold his Volkswagen Beetle to a Midvale teenager. Utah police impounded it, and FBI technicians dismantled and searched it. They found hairs matching samples obtained from Karen Campbell's body. Uh, Later, they also identified hair strands microscopically indistinguishable from those of Melissa Smith and Carol Durant. FBI lab specialist Robert Neal concluded that the presence of hair strands in one car matching three different victims who had never met one another would be a coincidence of mind-boggling rarity. So, let's, let's just kind of just roll some of that information back here, right? So, first things first, I mentioned earlier how all of his victims had long hair that was and let me just you know get the description of the hair I'm 100% accurate so they had long hair and it was parted down the middle now that is the exact description from Brooks ever since Brooks broke up with him back in, I believe it was 1968, 1969 again, keeping up with all of these dates is, is, you know, kind of difficult sometimes, but every single one of his victims had hair like her. He was targeting women that had hair like the initial girl that broke up with him. So you could say in a sense that that initial breakup from Brooks set him on his path because he started attacking girls that looked that had the same similar hair as her afterwards now there was the the incident when he was 15 that he didn't admit to so we don't know if he really did that or not because nothing ties him to it but you get what the fuck i'm saying here bundy bundy had a type he had a motif and in a, a lot of these cases that you will Here on macabre mysteries is these serial killers these these criminals they have they have types they have they have boxes and pictures of you know the people that they're going to to target for these type of assaults um so it's just again it's it's sad it's sad and wild to even think that somebody would be that specific and be attacking people with like you might as well at that point had just dyed your hair took out the little middle part like pushed your hair together wore a fucking afro went out and got a fucking jerry curl or some shit like anything but having long hair with a part down the middle especially after all these other people had been murdered with the same type of look again personally just from from a safety concern but on october um october second detectives put bundy into a lineup Durant immediately identified him as Officer Roseland, and witnesses from Bountyfield recognized him as a stranger at the high school auditorium. There was insufficient evidence to link him to Deborah Kent, whose body was never found, though a skeletal fragment found near the school was later identified as Kent's by DNA analysis. There, were more than enough evidence, there was more than enough evidence to charge him with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault in the Durant case. He was freed on a $15,000 bill paid by his parents and spent most of the time between indictment and trial in Seattle living at Clubford's house. Seattle police had insufficient evidence to charge him in the Pacific Northwest murders, but kept him under close surveillance. When Ted and I stepped out on the porch to go somewhere, Clubford wrote, so many unmarked police cars started up that it sounded like the beginning of the Indy 500." they were on his ass and as they should have been as you will hear later on um some of the other shit that he did like they should have 100 percent been on his ass but let me continue um so in november the three principal bundy investigators jerry thompson from utah robert keppel from washington and michael fisher from colorado met in aspen colorado and exchanged information with 30 detectives and prosecutors from five states. While officials left the meetings, later known as the Aspen Summit, convinced that Bundy was the murderer they sought, they agreed that more hard evidence would be needed before he could be charged with any of the murders. In February of 1976, Bundy stood trial for the Durant's kidnapping. On the advice of his attorney, John O'Connell, Bundy waived his right to a, jury to, um, to, to a jury due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. After a four-day bench trial and a weekend of deliberation, Judge Stewart... Hanson found him guilty of kidnapping and assault. In June, he was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. In October, he was found hiding in bushes in the prison yard, carrying an escape kit, road maps, airline schedules, and a social security card, and spent several weeks of solitary confinement. Later that month, Colorado authorities charged him with Karen Campbell's murder. After a period of resistance, he waived extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen in January of 1971. So... That's just his first arrest. That was the first trial. And as you, again, I'm going to read this last part very, very carefully because this goes into the next thing that we're going to talk about when it comes to him was his multiple escape attempts. So, it was said that he was found on the yard of the Utah State Prison. He was found hiding in bushes in the prison yard carrying an escape kit, road maps, airline schedules, and a social security card. That means that he was planning to escape the moment he got there. There was no other option for him. He didn't want to be there, and he was trying to get the fuck out. So, um, after he was transported to, or was getting transported to, um, to Aspen from the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood... Um, he had elected to serve as his own attorney at his trial and as such was excused by the judge from wearing handcuffs or leg shackles. During a recess, he asked to visit the courthouse's law library to research his case. While shooting from his guard's view, guard's view behind a bookcase, he opened a window and jumped to the ground from the second story, injuring his right ankle as he landed. After shedding an outer layer of clothing, he walked through Aspen as roadblocks were being set up on its outskirts and then hiked southward onto Aspen Mountain. Near its summit, he broke into a hunting cabin and stole food, clothing, and a rifle. The following day, he left the cabin and continued south toward the town of Crested Butt. Crested Butt? Crested Butt? That's hilarious. But became lost in the forest for two days. He wandered aimlessly on the mountain, missing two trails that led downward to his intended destination. On June 10th, he broke into a camping trailer on Maroon Lake, 10 miles south of Aspen, taking food and a ski park, but instead of continuing southward, he walked walked north toward Aspen, eluding roadblocks and search parties along the way. Three days later, he stole a car at the edge of Aspen Golf Course cold sleep deprived and in constant pain from his sprained ankle he drove back into aspen where two police officers noted his car weaving in and out of his lane and pulled him over he had been a fugitive for only six days in the car were maps of the mountain area around aspen the prosecutors were using to distribute to demonstrate the location of karen campbell's body as his own attorney bundy had rights of discovery indicating that his escape was not a spontaneous act but had been planned out Ergo the, the map, the, the schedule that he had on the yard that he was caught with. Once he was put back in jail, Bundy ignored the advice of friends and legal advisors to stay put. The case against him, already weak at best, was deteriorating steadily as pretrial motions consistently resolved in his favor and significant bits of evidence were ruled inadmissible. A more rational defendant might have realized that he stood a good chance of acquittal and that beating the murder charge in Colorado would probably have dissuaded other prosecutors with as little as a year and a half to serve on the Durant's conviction had Ted preserved yeah, had Ted preserved, he could have been a free man. Instead, Bundy assembled a new escape plan. He acquired a detailed floor plan at the jail and a hacksaw blade from other inmates and accumulated $500 in cash, smuggled in over a six-month period, later said by visitors Carol and Boone in particular. During the evenings while other prisoners were, show- were showering, again, one of those words that I can't ever fucking say, showering, um, showering, uh, he sawed a hole about one square foot between the steel reinforcing bars in his cell ceiling and having lost 35 pounds was able to wriggle through it into the crawl space above in the weeks that followed he made a series of practice runs exploring the space multiple reports from an informant of movement within the sail during the night were not investigated by late 1977, Bundy's impending trial had become a cause celebre in the small town of Aspen, and Bundy filed a motion for a change of venue to Denver. On December 23rd, the Aspen trial judge granted the request but to Colorado Springs, where juries had historically been hostile to murder suspects. On the night of December 30th, when most of the jail staff on Christmas break and non prisoners on furlough with their families, Bundy piled books and files in his bed, covered them with the blankets to stimulate his sleeping body, and climbed into the crawlspace. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief jailer, who was out for the evening with his wife. Changed into street clothes from a jailer's closet, and walked out the front door to freedom. Just fucking dipped. He got new clothes. He 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 changed. He changed venues. He got new clothes and, like I said, he just walked out the front door. He piled books and files in his bed, covered them with a blanket to simulate his body, climbed into the crawl space. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief, the apartment of the chief jailer, who was out for the evening with his wife, changed into street clothes from the jailer's own closet and dead after stealing a car bundy drove eastward out of glenwood springs but the car soon broke down in the mountains on interstate 70. a passing motorist gave him a ride into Vail, to the east from there he caught a bus to denver where he boarded a morning flight to chicago in glenwood springs the jail skeleton crew did not discover the escape until noon on december the 34th the 31st more than 17 hours later by then Bundy was already in Chicago and once again ladies and gentlemen I have no idea what's wrong with me I'm a podcaster by by literal design and I can't even say fucking 31st I can't even say 31st but let's go ahead and just cover what the fuck we covered so far so he escaped not once but twice the first escape he was caught after 6 days the second escape they didn't find him until it was 17 hours too late. By then, the motherfucker was in Chicago. By the time they discovered him, he was already in Chicago. Fucking insane. From Chicago, Bundy traveled by train to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he was present in a local tavern on January 2nd. Five days later, he stole a car and drove to Atlanta, where he boarded a bus and arrived in Tallahassee, Florida. On the morning of January 8th, he rented a room under the alias Chris Hagen at the Holiday Inn near the Florida State University campus. Bundy later said that he initially resolved to find legitimate employment and refrain from further criminal activity, knowing he could probably remain free and undetected in Florida indefinitely as long as he did not attract the attention of police. But his loan job application at a construction site had to be abandoned when he was asked to produce identification. He reverted to his old habits of shoplifting and stealing credit cards from women's wallets left in shopping carts. So once he left Chicago and headed to Florida, he was trying to figure out what the fuck to do. He was trying to figure out how the fuck can I make money. At first, he was like, let me go ahead and do this shit a legal way. And then he was like, nah, you know what? Never mind that. Fuck all that. I'm not going to be able to do this shit no legal way. I'm going to have to go back to my old fucking ways. I'm going to have to 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 steal from these others. I'm going to have to get 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 me, get like, you know, I do fucking credit card. I'm going to have to get completely new shit I'm, 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 I'm about to like take all that shit and turn their shit into my shit again fucking crazy in the early hours of January 15th of 1978 one week after his arrival in Tallahassee now this is the most fucked up one of them all like this is the most fucked up one of them all to me uh, Bundy entered FSU's Kyle Omega sorority house through a rear door with a faulty locking mechanism beginning at about 2 45 a.m. he bludgeoned Mar- Margaret Bowman with a piece of oak firewood as she slept she was sleeping and got beat to death with oak firewood then he garroted her with a nylon stocking He then entered the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Levy and beat her unconscious and strangled her, tore one of her nipples, bit deeply into her left ass cheek, and sexually assaulted her with a hair mist bottle. In an adjoining bedroom, he attacked Kathy Kleiner, breaking her jaw and deeply lacerating her shoulder and, and Karen Chandler, who suffered a concussion, broken jaw, loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. Chandler and Kleiner survived the attack. Kleiner later attributed their survival to automobile headlights illuminating the interior of their room. Frightening Away Bundy Tallahassee detectives later determined that the four attacks took place in a total of less than 15 minutes, within earshot of more than 30 witnesses who heard nothing. After leaving the sorority house, Bundy broke into a basement apartment eight blocks away and attacked FSU student Cheryl Thomas dislocating her shoulder and fracturing her jaw and skull in five places she was left with permanent deafness equilibrium damage that ended her dance career um on thomas's bed police found a semen stain and a pantyhose mask containing two hairs similar to bundy's in a class and characteristic So the reason why I said that one was the most fucked up one out of everything that he's done, because he's done quite a bit up to this point, but the reason why I said that that was the most fucked up is because he literally, like, snuck in the basement of this sorority house and killed two people, like, within, like, five minutes. Like, it took him no time. He was like, boom, you're dead, boom, you're dead, bow. Let me go across the hall real quick. Let me beat your ass, let me beat your ass, and then let me go ahead and just run the fuck off, like... He he did that so fucking quick, and I feel like at that point, like it wasn't even about the, the 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 thrill of the crime no more. Like, not necessarily like that's a fucking good thing, but it wasn't even that at this point. It was just literally like I'm I'm. It's like it was a need. It was like an urge. Like that. that and I I say like a lot. If this is your first time ever listening to me, because you like true crime, but it was one of those situations. It was one of those situations where it was something. If if. It seems like from from what it, from everything I've read so far to everything that I'm putting the pieces together and I hope you all can follow along um, it, it seems I hope you all been following along with me. It seems that like that it seems that he had this urge to kill on the inside of him and that's completely horrible. Um, on February 8th, Bundy drove 150 miles east to Jacksonville in a stolen FSU van. In a parking lot, he approached 14-year-old Leslie Parmenter, the daughter of Jacksonville Police Department's chief of detectives, identifying himself as Richard Burton. I lost my place. Identifying himself as Richard Burton, fire department, but retreated when Parmenter's older brother arrived and challenged him. That afternoon, he backtracked to Lake City, and Lake City. Junior high school, the following morning, 12-year-old Kimberly Leach was summoned to her homeroom by a teacher to retrieve her forgotten purse. She never returned to class. Seven weeks later, after an intensive search, her partitionally mummified remains were found in a pig farrowing shed near Suwannee River State Park, northwest of Lake City. She appeared to have been raped and killed by neck lacerations with a knife. Again, this urge to kill is just growing in. He's just like, I, I gotta take somebody. I got it like, I gotta murder somebody. I had to take somebody out. Completely fucked up. On February 12th, with insufficient cash to pay his overdue rent and a growing suspicion that police were closing in on him, Bundy stole a car and fled Tallahassee, driving westward across the Florida Panhandle. Three days later, at around 1 a.m., he was stopped by Pensacola. Police officer David Lee, near the Alabama state line, after a once-in-warrant check, showed the Volkswagen Beetle was stolen. When told he was under arrest, Bundy kicked Lee's legs out from under him and took off running. Lee fired a warning shot followed by a second round gave chase and tackled him. The two struggled over Lee's gun before the officer finally subdued and arrested Bundy. In the stolen vehicle were three sets of IDs belonging to female FSU students, 21 stolen credit cards and a stolen television set. Also found were a pair of dark rimmed non-prescription glasses and a pair of plaid slacks later identified as the disguise worn by Richard Burton, fire department in Jacksonville. Um, As Lee transported his suspect to jail, unaware that he had just arrested one of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives, he heard Bundy say, I wish you had killed. Bundy never wanted to go to jail. Bundy never wanted to get caught. It was either, let me do my crime and kill me, or let me the fuck go like he never that's why he kept escaping again this is all this is all like making sense as the 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 story goes on like this is all like starting to 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 make sense and i hope this is starting to make sense to you like i I researched the story a little bit before i brought it to you all um it's a story that i've heard like quite a few times but it was nothing to like you know all the specifics and details that I were able to truly gather but in this particular instance you know I have them for you so I hope you're enjoying story time Story time with Way. <laughs> uh, check out our YouTube by the way check out the Way's World Podcast Network YouTube where you can find videos from me Shani the Shooter, Moody's Point and many more videos coming soon but in the Florida trials so Following the change of venue to Miami, Bundy stood trial for the Kai Omega homicides and assaults in June of 1979. The trial was covered by 250 reporters from five continents, and that was the first to be televised nationally in the United States. Despite the presence of five court appointed attorneys, Bundy again handled much of his own defense. From the beginning, he sabotaged the entire defense effort out of spite and distrust and grandiose delusion. Nelson later wrote, uh, Ted was facing murder charges with a possible death sentence and all that mattered to him apparently was that he be in charge. According to Mike Minerva, a Tallahassee police defender and member of the defense team, a pretrial plea bargain was negotiated in which Bundy would plead guilty to killing Levy, Bowman and Leach, in exchange for a firm 75 year prison sentence. Prosecutors were amendable to a deal by one account because prospects of losing at trial were very good. Bundy, on the other hand, saw that saw the deal not only as a means of avoiding the death penalty, but also as a tactical move. He could enter his plea, then wait a few years for evidence to disintegrate or become lost, or for witnesses to die move on and retract their testimony. Once the case against him had deteriorated, deteriorated beyond repair, he could file a post-conviction motion to set aside the plea and secure an acquittal. At the last minute, however, Bundy refused the deal. It made him realize he was going to have to stand up in front of the whole world and say he was guilty. Minerva said he just couldn't do it. At trial, crucial testimony came from Kai Omega sorority members Connie Hastings, who placed Bundy in the vicinity of the Kai Omega house that evening, and Nita Neary, who saw him leaving the sorority house clutching the Oak murder weapon. Um, incriminating physical evidence, including impressions of the bite wounds Bundy had inflicted on Lisa Levy's left buttocks, which forensic odontologists Richard Sauvierne and Lowell Levine, again, I'm not good with names, so please excuse me, matched the casting of Bundy's teeth. The jury deliberated for less than seven hours before convicting him on July 24th of 1979 of the Bowman and Levy murders. Three counts of attempted first degree murder for the assaults of Kleiner, Chandler, and Thomas, and two counts of burglary. Trial judge Edward Cowart um, Coward, impo- imposed death sentences for the murder convictions. Um, six months later, a second trial took place in Orlando for the abduction and murder of Kimberly Leach. Bundy was found guilty once again after less than eight hours deliberation due to principally to the testimony of an eyewitness who saw him leading Leach from the schoolyard to his stolen van, important material evidence included clothing fibers with the unusual manufacturing error found in the van and on Leach's body, which matched fibers from the jacket Bundy was wearing when he was arrested. During the penalty phase of the trial, Bundy took advantage of an obscure Florida law providing that a marriage declaration in court in the presence of a judge constituted a legal marriage and as he was questioning former Washington State um, DES co-worker Carol Ann Boone who had moved to Florida to be near Bundy had testified on his behalf during both trials and again was testifying on his behalf as a character witness he asked her to marry him she accepted and Bundy declared to the court that they were legally married Bundy was sentenced for a third time by electro electrocution as the sentence was announced he reportedly stood up and shouted tell the jury they were wrong This third death sentence would be the one ultimately carried out nearly nine years later Boone gave birth to a daughter and named Bundy as the father. While conjugal visits were not allowed at rapid prison, inmates were known to pull their money in order to bribe guards to allow their intimate time along to allow them intimate time along with their female visitors. It's just fucked up. It's just fucked up. This is just, again, just a, a fucked up individual doing fucked up things and they got him at the end of the day they got him at the end of all the information you've heard today on Macabre Mysteries they got they got him he got sentenced to death and he eventually ended up dying by electrocution um and that ends the story of One's Head Bundy but there's a little bit more information that I do want to kind of give before I close out today so Um, I just want to kind of give uh, Death Road, like what happened while he was on Death Road, some of his confessions. um, And then also I want to talk about his modus operandi, which is something I've low-key kind of been hinting to or talking about throughout the whole show. So, shortly after the conclusion of the Leach trial and the beginning of the long appeals process that have followed Bundy, initiated a series of interviews with Stephen McCowd and Hugh Ainsworth speaking mostly in third person to avoid the stigma of confession he began for the first time to divulge details of the crimes and thought processes he recounted his career as a thief confirming Clopper's longtime suspicion that he had shoplifted virtually everything of substance that he owned the big payoff for me he said was actually possessing whatever it was I I had stolen I really enjoyed having something that I wanted and had gone and taken possession proved to be an important motive for rape and murder as well sexual assault he said fulfilled his need to totally possess his victims at first he killed his victims as a matter of expediency um, expediency but to eliminate the possibility of being caught but later murder became part of the adventure the ultimate possession was in fact the taking of the life he said and then the physical possession of the remains what did I say earlier in the show? As I was reading this and as I was breaking this down, I was saying it seems like at first it was just kind of like as a means to an end. Like I've already kind of like kidnapped you. I've already raped you. So I'm just kind of murdering you now. So not even kind of I'm murdering you now. So I don't get caught, which eventually end up getting him caught to the or at the end of the day. And then it turned into a game for him. It turned into a fucking game. And this is why I wanted to cover this on Macabre Mysteries. Because that really is a Macabre Mystery. Of what puts that in people's minds. What puts that in people's heads. That this is fun. That this is a thrill. Is it literally the fact that you're not getting caught? Is it literally the fact that you know... You're getting that well, I'm about to say the same thing, but is it the fact that you're getting away with it? Is that what it is that 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 drive that that drives psychopathic minds like that? And that's you know, that's up for debate, that's up for discussion, that's something we can definitely discuss if you wanna DM your boy at World underscore network. Or if you want to leave a review on Apple. Google, Spotify, and everywhere else that we can be found in the world. If you Google us, the ways for a podcast network, you can find us in a lot of places. Um, but Bundy also confided in Special Agent William Hagemeyer, Hage, Hagemeyer? Um, of the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit. Hagemeyer was struck by the deep, almost mystical satisfaction that Bundy took in murder. He said that after a while, murder is not just a crime of lust or violence, um, Meyer related. It became possession. They are a part of you. The victim becomes a part of you, and you two are forever one. And the grounds were where you kill them or leave them become sacred to you, and you always will be drawn back to them. Bundy told Meyer that he considered himself to be an amateur and impulsive killer in his early years but moving into what he termed his prime or predator phase about the time of linda healy's murder in 1974. this implied that he began killing well before 1974 although he never explicitly admitted to having done so rayford guards found two hacksaw blades that Bundy had hidden in his cell a steel bar and one of the cell's windows had been sawed completely through at the top and bottom and glued back into place with a homemade soap-based adhesive. Several months later, guards found an unauthorized mirror hidden in the cell, and Bundy was again moved to a different cell. Shortly thereafter, he was charged with a disciplinary infraction for unauthorized correspondence with another high-profile criminal profile criminal John Hickley Jr. in October of 1984. Bundy con- contacted Robert Keppel and offered to share share his self-proclaimed expertise in serial killer psychology and the ongoing hunt in Washington for the Green River Killer, later identified as Gary Ridgway. Keppel and Green River Task Force Detective Dave Reichert Reich- I cannot get these names right. Reichert interviewed Bundy, but Ridgway remained at large for a further 17 years. Keppel published a detailed documentation of the Green River interviews and later collaborated with McCaud on another examination of the interview material. Bundy coined the nickname The River Man for Gary Ridgway, which was later used for the title of Keppel's book, The River Man, Ted Bundy and I Hunt for the Green River Killer. Um, and then he was killed in 1980, 1989. Uh, he was killed in 1989, but in early 1986, execution date uh, was set on the Chi Omega convictions. In April, shortly after the new date, was announced Bundy finally confessed to Hagenmeyer and Nelson that they believed what they believed was the full range of his depredation including details of what he did to some of his victims For their after their deaths. He told them that he visited Taylor Mountain, Sequoia, and other secondary crime scenes often several times to lie with his victims and perform sexual acts with their decomposing bodies. What the fuck did I say earlier? This motherfucker was on some necrophilia type shit. He is crazy. He was crazy. Necrophilia. I knew it. He was going back, fucking these dead bodies. Fucking, ugh. Just disgusting. Just disgusting. Uh, until, but until putrefaction forced him to stop. In some cases, he drove for several hours each way and remained the entire night in Utah he applied makeup to Melissa Smith's lifeless face, and he repeatedly washed Laura Ames here if you've got if you've got time he told Hagermeyer then they can be anything you want them to be he decapitated approximately 12 of his victims with the with a hacksaw and kept at least one group of severed heads probably the four later found on Taylor Mountain in his apartment for a period of time before they disposed of them. um Just fucking crazy. Just fucking crazy. Again, the whole thing was fucking... The whole uh, execution was fast-tracked. Boone championed um, his innocence throughout all of his trials and felt deeply betrayed by his admission that he was, in fact, guilty. She moved back to Washington with her daughter and refused to accept his phone call on the morning of his execution. She was hurt by his relationship with Diana Weiner. Nelson wrote and devastated by his sudden wholesome confession in in his last days um was also present during Bundy's final interviews with investigators on the eve of his execution he talked of suicide saying he did not want to give the state the satisfaction of watching him die again he was just misogynistic and this was just sickening very very sickening but um We'll be right back here with you on Macabre Mysteries. We got one more segment to go, which is just the modus operandi, and then we'll go ahead and get up out of here. Thank you all so much for listening so far, and we hope you come back with us. All right, so the last thing I'm going to get into before we close this thing out is his modus operandi. Like I said, I've kind of been talking about that throughout this whole thing. But I just wanna kinda cover that just a little bit more because a lot of serial killers have this thing called a modus operandi, which is basically just the general frame of their victims. So Bundy was an unusually organized and calculating criminal who used his extensive knowledge of law enforcement mythologies methodologies to elude identification and capture for years. His crime scenes were distributed over large geographic areas. His victim count had risen to at least 20 before it became clear that numerous investigators and widely desperate jurisdictions were hunting the same man. His assault methods of choice were blunt trauma and strangulation to relatively silent techniques that could be accomplished with common household items he deliberately avoided firearms due to the noise that they made and the ballistic evidence they left behind he was a meticulously he was a meticulous researcher who explored his surroundings in a minute detail looking for safe sites to seize and dispose of victims he was unusually skilled at minimizing physical evidence his fingerprints were never found at a crime scene nor any other incontrovertible evidence of his guilt A fact, he repeated often during the years in which he attempted to maintain his innocence. Other significant obstacles for law enforcement were Bundy's generic, essentially anonymous physical features. A curious chameleon-like ability to change his appearance almost at will. Early on, police complained of the futility of showing his photograph to witnesses. He looked different in virtually every photo ever taken of him. In person, his expression would so change the whole appearance that there were moments that you weren't even sure you were looking at the same person, says Stuart Hanson Jr., the judge in the Duranche trial. He was really a changeling. Bundy was well aware of, his, of this unusual quality, and he exploited it using subtle modifications of facial hair or hairstyles to significantly alter his appearance as necessary. He concealed his one distinct, distinctive identifying mark, a dark mole on his neck, With turtleneck shirts and sweaters Even his Volkswagen Beetle proved Difficult to pin down Its color was variously described by witnesses As metallic or non-metallic Tan or bronze Light brown or dark brown Um, His modus operandi Evolved in organization And sophistication over time As is typical of serial killers According to FBI experts Early on it consisted of forcible Late night entry followed by a violent attack With a blunt weapon on a sleeping victim. As his methodology evolved, Bundy became progressively more organized in his choice of victims and crime scenes. He would employ various ruses designed to lure his victims to the vicinity of his vehicle where he had pre-positioned a weapon, usually a crowbar, in many cases he wore a plaster cast on one leg or a sling on one arm and sometimes hobbled on crutches and then requested assistance in carrying something to his vehicle. Bundy was regarded as handsome and charismatic um, traits he exploited to win the confidence of his victims and the people around him in his daily life. Tailored females, McCawd wrote, the way a lifeless silk flower can dupe a honeybee. In situations where his looks and charms were not useful, he evoked authority by identifying himself as a police officer or a firefighter. Once Bundy had them near or inside his vehicle, he would overpower and bludgeon them and then restrain them with handcuffs. He would then transport them to a pre-selected secondary site, often a considerable distance away, strangled them by ligature during the act of rape. Um, At secondary sites, he would remove and later burn the victim's clothes, or at least one case, deposit them in a goodwill industry collection bin. Bundy explained that the clothing removal was ritualistic, but also a practical matter as it minimized the chance of leaving trace evidence at the crime scene that could implicate him. Um, he often revisited his secondary crime scenes to engage in the acts of fucking necrophilia and to groom or dress up the cadavers. The cadavers. Um, some victims were found wearing articles of clothing they had never worn or nail polish that family members had never seen. He took Polaroid photos of many of his victims. When you when you work hard to do something right, he told Hagemeyer, you don't want to forget it. Consumptions um, of large quantities of alcohol was an essential component, he told both Keppel and McCauld. He needed to be extremely drunk drunk while on the prowl in order to be significantly to in order to significantly diminish his inhibitions and to sedate the dominant personality and that he feared might prevent his inner entity from acting on his impulses. Toward the end of his spree in Florida, perhaps under the stress of being a fugitive, he regressed to indiscriminate attacks on sleeping victims. Um, now here's the, the the biggest fucked up part about all this, right? All of Bundy's known victims were white females, most of middle class backgrounds, almost all were between the ages of 15 and 25, most were college students, because he dated his girl while they were in college. He apparently never approached anyone he might have met before. In their last conversation before his execution, Bundy told Klopfer he had purposefully stayed away from her when he felt the power of his sickness building in him. Rule noted that most of the identified victims had long, straight hair parted in the middle, like Stephanie Brooks, the woman who rejected him and to whom he later became engaged and then rejected in return. Rule speculated that Bundy's animosity towards Brooks, his first girlfriend, triggered his protracted rampage and caused him to target victims who resembled her. Bundy dismissed his hypothesis. Um, he said they just fit the general criteria of being young and attractive he told Hugh Ainsworth so many people have bought this crap that all the girls were similar but almost everything was dissimilar physically they were almost all different he did concede that youth and beauty were absolutely indispensable criteria in the choice of victims so I just generally want to say this um Ted Bundy was a very very fucked up person Ted Bundy did a very 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 he did a whole lot of fucked up things and if you even get the inkling of somebody like this being around you do whatever you can to get away from that situation if you have somebody that that you know tries to be that charmer at all points in time that's a red flag. If you have somebody that is consistent, like I'm not saying people can't be charming. I'm not saying people can't assist but people that are overly active and trying to like do that to a certain extent if you don't know that their intentions if you don't know for a fact their intentions are good, which nowadays you can never really ever guess or talk about or tell anybody's true intentions. But If you truly know them and you understand them, then again, believe them. But in cases of people that you don't know, like, look at the signs. Look at the signs. Red flags are things. This has been Macabre Mysteries. I want to say thank you all for listening to the first episode. Um, I want you all to have a good night. I want you all to stay safe, stay blessed, and peace out.